Good afternoon, Mendocino County. This is Michelle Hutchins, County Superintendent of Schools, with this month's edition of Inside Education. New information on Inside Education. We have a new time slot starting next month. In November, we are going to be same day and time of the month. However, we are going to be at 7 p.m. So in November, our show will be the 4th Thursday at 7 p.m. That happens to fall on Thanksgiving. We're going to have students read poems on gratitude. So please tune in. Again, 7 p.m. on Thanksgiving for Inside Education. Today, we're going to interview a few students about some fundraisers they have available. Hopefully, you'll consider supporting students this year in their many fundraising events as the pandemic has really limited their ability to be able to fundraise countywide. All of our students need to do fundraising in order to be able to participate in co-curricular activities, have academic field trips that go well beyond the confines of our county, and have fun with their senior year, junior and senior year. There's a lot of activities that cost a lot of money. And this last couple of years, they have had very little opportunity to earn money. As you plan for your holiday gifts this year, if you would please consider supporting the many student events that are around our county. To get started, I have two students from Point Arena High School with me today, Lupita and Josue Sanchez, both cousins in Point Arena. Lupita and Josue, tell us a little bit about yourselves. Hi, my name is Lupita. I am a senior in Point Arena High School. I play sports and I am part of ASB. I'm the secretary and treasurer for my class. You are both secretary and treasurer of ASB. And for our listeners, ASB stands for Associated Student Body. And what does ASB do? What do you do as secretary and treasurer of ASB? I usually, um, in like concessions for our sports, I'm the one counting the money, receiving the currency that they give me, they... Okay, yeah. so you collect money at games, and yes. you you have to account for all of the club, because it's kind of a club, right? It's a club on campus, and what does it do, essentially? We are the ones that um, choose if we want to dance or any activities done in our school. Yeah, and so, so... So, and who's I'm- with you today? Tell me who's with you, Lupita. Josue Sanchez is with me. All right, Josue, tell us a little bit about yourself. All right, so I am a pres- I am the president of ASB, Pointerina uh, High School, and I am also I am a senior. And some of the things that I usually do is I manage some of the member the other members of ASB, which I believe is twelve of us or thirteen. Thirteen. And so what I do is I try to get them all to do their own little like piece of ASB so I can have Lupita focus on like concessions and sports and I can have another member focus on dances and and some of the social events and one of the other members could focus on say pep rallies. And Josue how would you describe or how would you explain to the public or to our listeners what an ASB does, what an associated student body, what those groups of students are responsible for. What do you do? Yeah, so for ASB, we break down our members into presidents, 
vice presidents and and secretaries slash treasurers. Um, we tried to like create to raise um, student spirit or school spirit. School spirit, and we tr- we try to like encourage um, some of the students to interact with each other and to have fun while going through their high school process. So you set the culture. Yeah. yeah. You're about kid culture. Yeah. Awesome. What do you have for us today? We have, we're approaching the holiday season. What kind of fundraisers is Point Arena High School planning? Uh, so some of the fundraisers that we, we were thinking about is like having a winter dance. So like. If if people like attend um, the dances we we try to have, we we like raise the money to get other supplies for our school. What type of supplies? So for ASB, some we raise money from the school activities to get better supplies and equipment for our school. Some of those um, equipment being whether it be bench benches or computers. So places where kids can hang out and either work on their homework or socialize with each other. You're planning a winter dance. So if I am a person that lives not very close to Point Arena, how could I participate in your fundraiser? What would be the best way for me to engage? Um, I'm assuming only students can go to the dance. Yes, and if it's like someone from a different school, we usually um, need a like a, like a, a permission, permission slip from the other. Right. What is it that you have planned for this year? Yeah, so for this year, we want to implement some of the ideas that we see throughout our society. And some of the things are like vending machines, and we want to also start providing free feminine hygiene products for some of our students. And we would also like to have activity, more social activities where students can get to meet one another and to have more friends. These are all things that you would do with the money that you fundraise, correct? Yes. Okay. So what is it that you have planned for a fundraiser this year? As for fundraisers, we want to have new dances. You want to do dances? So you're going to have, how often will you hold these dances? Uh, we were planning of having one in winter and one in the spring. So you'll have a big winter dance and a spring dance. Yeah. Are students from around the county allowed to attend this dance, or is it just students from Point Arena High School? Yeah, so what we want to do is to have people from inside our school interact with each other, as well as other students around the county to interact with Point Arena High School students. If I was a student from another high school and I wanted to come attend your winter dance, how how could I do that? In order to attend our dance, you could be accompanied by another Point Arena High School student and you would just simply ask them for a permission slip and you could get that filled in. Uh, another thing you can do is email us, email us at, our, at our email and you can contact Point Arena High School in order to go to the dance. And what email should people contact if they wanted to attend the dance? Uh, They could contact 
Justin G. Sanchez at PAUHS.org or J. Sanchez at PAUHS.org. Do you have a specific date of when this dance is planned yet? Uh, no. As of right now, we are we were talking about uh, the success of the homecoming dance and game and how, and how we could work to better organize ourselves. So how would people find out when your dance is once you decide make that decision? Uh, we have an Instagram page. Instagram page. Okay, what's that? Uh, give me a sec. Okay. okay, while he's looking that up, how would people get involved to help you plan the dance, prepare for the dance? Dances take a lot of work. It's not just a couple of students that put it on. How would, how would people in Point Arena help you out? The best way is to um, donate to the to our ASB if they have like any idea of like like decorations or anything if they have something they don't use anymore for our dances or to like help us decorate that would help us a lot. If people wanted to donate money to the Associated Student Body at Point Arena High School, how would they do that? Who would they write the check to? Where would they send it? Uh, so, in order to to send Pointer High School a check, you would send a, a check to Pointer High. So, you would send it to the address two seven zero Lake Street, Pointer and California at nine five four six eight. And you would write it out to Pointer High School's Associated Body. Just to make sure our listeners heard that, if you want to donate money to the to Point Arena High School's Associated Student Body, you would make the check to Point Arena High School Associated Body, and you would mail it to 270 Lake Street, Point Arena, 95468. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and so other information that you could find about our dances and upcoming events can be found at our Instagram page, which is P-A-H-S underscore A-S-B. P-A-H-S underscore A-S-B. Then how's this year been going for you? Um, it was better than last year, for sure. <laughs> and tell me what makes it better than last year. For me personally, I started getting better grades than last year. Because I had to be, or I was able to talk to my teachers about my grades and like be able to like ask any questions that I had about it in like before in like Zoom. It was really hard for me to be like really attended to the classes. Mm-hmm. It's harder to engage. Yeah. How about you, Josue? Yeah, so I kept up my grades pretty well. Um, the only thing was, yeah, I faced a similar issue that I didn't feel as connected to the class or the teacher. So I felt it wasn't as easy to contact them whether I had an issue, if I had an issue on an assignment. Right. Any advice you give students that have to go through a pandemic in the future? Um, find a way to talk to your your teachers, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> How about you, Josue? Reaching out to your teachers and like keeping up on your grades can really help. So if you like look at the assignments and see if something was turned in incorrectly, 
you could talk to your teachers about it. And usually emailing them shows that you're putting your like effort your effort into your schoolwork. Okay. So be proactive in contacting your teachers. Yeah. That's sort of like sitting in the front of the class when you can choose your own seat. Yeah. Yeah. yeah <laughs> I think we do that too. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Well, you're listening to Josue Sanchez and Lupita Sanchez. They're both students at Point Arena High School. They participate in the Associated Student Body. Josue is the president. Lupita is the secretary and the treasurer. And they both are asking for the community's support in helping their Associated Student Body get some pretty key resources for their school. They actually use their money not just for benefiting the student culture, but also for getting resources for students that they can't typically get. Things like free uh, hygiene products in the bathrooms and nicer facilities for students or, or benches for students to gather on or sh- you know do homework, etc. Let's support these students as best as we can. They're planning some school dances and let's give it our all. When I contacted schools to interview today, it was obvious that many of the student fundraisers are still being planned. Because of that, I only have Point Arena High School to share with the listeners today. What we're going to do with the rest of the show is switch gears. I'm going to play a repeat of May 27th Vaccine Safety for Children, where we interviewed three pediatricians. The three pediatricians were Dr. Flaherty, Dr. Cohen, and Dr. Hott. Here's the interview back from May 27th, 2021. My guests for the hour today are pediatrician Dr. Jim Flaherty, family medicine physician Dr. Lynn Cohen, and family medicine physician Dr. Charlie Hott. Could you each take a moment to introduce yourselves? Dr. Flaherty, why don't you start? Thank you, Michelle. Um, My name is Jim Flaherty. I trained in pediatrics and pediatric emergency medicine at Oakland Children's Hospital. And I spent the first 20-plus years of my career in northern Arizona on the Navajo Nation and then moved here in 2005 and worked in the ER for a while and then settled in at Consolidated Tribal Health, where I retired uh, in January of 2020. Uh, And um, I'm Lynn Cohen. I'm a family medicine physician. I've been practicing in Ukiah for the last 28 years. Currently, I'm helping out with the new family medicine residency program, um, specifically in community health issues. Um, Just one element of disclosure about... um, the past of myself and Dr. Hot is we did work in Africa for two years. And I have to say, one of the most heartbreaking things we had to do was stand by and watch children suffer and die from immunizable diseases. So I just had to get that out there so you know where I'm coming from. Thank you. Uh, I'm Charlie Hot, and uh, my background is uh, 40 years in the ER, starting at L.A. County Hospital. And then um, 25 years in hospice uh, uh, with uh, here in Willis, seven years as a county health director at five in southern Arizona, one here. Again, we were county health directors in Africa for a couple of years. 
Dr. Flaherty, why do you trust the vaccine in general and for youth? The medical community and the scientific community has decades of experience with immunization with adults and kids, but more of it is with infants, children, and teens. And there's a broad array of vaccines out there for viruses and bacteria for the pediatric population. And the end result uh, is that in our country, as opposed to the example that Dr. Cohen gave, we have uh, reduced death and disabling disease dramatically in the United States for diseases that were common and um, that many children died from. In our careers, even in the United States, we've seen kids die uh, from those diseases up until about the mid-90s when broad vaccination became more available. So as a result of, of that experience, um, we also have the benefit of herd immunity, and that's why the more people we vaccinate, the more likely the, the community is protected, and that's why public health is pushing, pushing, pushing now to get everybody to get a COVID vaccine. The science of immunization marches on, and in the past, most viral vaccines were called live and uh, inactivated or killed virus. This COVID vaccine is new because it's the messenger RNA virus, at least the ones that are available to kids 12 to 17. The mechanism is slightly different, so it's being watched very carefully. It's, it's pretty clean science, and it's a new way to approach immunization. And I know some people are worried about that, but um, I think that we're going to see, based on the uh, continued information we're getting about efficacy, which means it's effective in preventing disease and immunogenicity, meaning that when we measure antibodies, they're, uh, they're high levels, that this is going to be a very effective vaccine um, with not very many serious side effects. Can you tell our listeners what it takes to get emergency FDA approval? Well, actually, yeah. it, it takes some initial studies. Um, this is Dr. And, Cohen. And it's still, yeah, and it's still a long process. You have to prove safety. Um, but in the initial studies, it's a very small number of, of patients in the, in the clinical trials. Um, and you make this uh, application that's not as involved as the, the long-term uh, full application, which is called a BLA, a Biologic License Authorization. So the EUA still has to demonstrate safety and efficacy, and I think we all saw this on the news um, as each company went to the FDA for their emergency use authorization. Some of them were turned down, and some of them were delayed because of safety issues. So it's still a very um, well-watched process. Thank you. Okay, Dr. Hot. How do vaccines work in the body? Can you explain to us what an immune response is and whether or not the vaccines have virus in them and whether we could get COVID from the vaccine? The way that this vaccine, these vaccines work, at least the, the Moderna and the Pfizer, uh, which are the ones that are being used the most, uh, it's an RNA vaccination, mRNA, which is messenger RNA. It is not a, uh, a DNA type of uh, vaccine. The vaccine, when it's injected, a, the, a strip of mRNA, which is a genetic material, and is, it's uh, coated 
and it enters the body's cell and prompts the cell to build copies of spike proteins. These spike proteins are the bumps that protrude from the surface of the coronavirus particles. The body's immune system then learns to spot these spike proteins and produces antibodies that block the virus from entering the healthy cells in the future. The, uh, the mRNA eventually goes on to break down. They still don't know, you know how long it's going to be around, and so uh, uh, whether it's six months, a year, or whatever, because we don't have the, the experience with it yet. You know, do, there, there are no viruses, to answer the other questions, there are no viruses in any of the uh, vaccinations, uh, or certainly these two, and uh, people cannot get COVID from the vaccine because there's no true COVID uh, in the inside the vaccine. Just it's it's a vaccine working on these spike proteins to keep those uh, to keep the COVID out of a healthy cell. And another part that says here, if the kids feel crummy, isn't that an indicator of the vaccine is working? Looking through things, I couldn't find that, but. I certainly have seen it where the first vaccine, the, the person may have a sore arm or something, but on the second vaccine, uh, they may feel a little crummy. And uh, I, I'm not unhappy. That's what happened to me. I'm not unhappy that I felt a little crummy. Okay, Dr. Hot, do any of the COVID-19 vaccines authorized for use in the United States shed or release any of their components? Uh, and that's where this is different. Uh, uh, the CDC says no. And so I just, you know, just, uh, I have to go by their research and what, uh, what they see in these different vaccines. Will the vaccine alter my child's DNA if given the vaccine? Again, this is an R- messenger RNA. It's not a DNA. It's a, this is a, uh, where the body will encode these things and uh, submit it into the cells of our body. So that's one where it's pretty easy to say no DNA involved in this process. RNA goes on to eventually just being, again, downgrade. You know, it sort of breaks down, is reused by the body. You know, it's as, as you know, amino acids uh, are, the, the mRNA is formed of uh, amino acids. But, yeah, no, CDC says no. Dr. Flaherty, how many kids have had the vaccine so far, nationally and locally, and are there common side effects? So I was able to find good local data, but the national data isn't very helpful that's on the CDC website, Um, and that's because they've added the uh, 12 to 17 group to the entire population. They've just moved the lower age bar down and lumped them in with the entire group. I'm sure the data is available somewhere, but I looked on the CDC website, and what I can tell you that I did find was that of the 370 million Americans, um, so far 165 million have had at least one dose, and the 12 to 17-year-olds are in that 165 million group, but I don't can't tell you how many of that 165 are 12 to 17. Now, locally, the California Department of Public Health's data um, as of 525, so pretty current, um, is that in our county, 3.8% of those immunized are 12 to 17 years old. Now, we can actually say with certainty that that 3.8% is uh, 3,100 
doses. And since they've only received one dose, because I checked with public health and nobody's received two doses in that kid group, 3,100 individuals in a 12 to 17-year-old group have been immunized. Uh, but they they will need a second. Some Many of them will need their second dose. So that's good news. That's um, good news. We're in a county yeah. with 12,000 K-12 students. So with that yeah. number, that's high. It's a high yeah. percentage. Yeah. And, and so the other interesting bit of data that's a bit of an aside, though, is that, you know, our county, California has its own census, and our county's census in 2019 was 86,750, and we've given 81,000 doses of vaccine in our county. Now, again, because some people have had one and some two, it doesn't mean 81,000 people are immunized, but it means we've given an extraordinarily high, do- high number of doses, and that's pretty darn good so far. In terms of the side effects, before I answer the question about um, this vaccine and side effects, there's a word about side effects that we docs that we say to people. Well, there's sort of three groups. There's allergic reactions, which are very, 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 very rare. I could keep saying very, very many times more. And then there's local reactions where the needle actually goes in your arm. And then there's systemic reactions, which are you could think of as flu-like symptoms. And then people have one systemic reaction or two or three or four. And the more you have, the sicker you feel. So right now, the information that's available is that the side effect profile for um, the messenger RNA COVID vaccine that people have received is comparable to the 18 to 26-year-old group because they've bracketed all the studies by age group. So they don't want to compare it to 85-year-olds or 65-year-olds. So they're comparing it to the closest age group. And the, the rates of side effects are the same. Allergic reactions are incredibly low. And um, the majority of the reactions are a combination of local and systemic. And the number is pretty surprising. It's 90%, and that's what it's in the 18 to 26-year-old group. But it doesn't distinguish in that overall number if you had just a local side effect or a local side effect with a systemic side effect with one symptom or two symptoms or three or four. It's all lumped together. I couldn't get it any clearer than that. Your son's uh, response was pretty typical. Okay. Yeah, I do want to share with the viewers or the listeners that my son is 12 and has been vaccinated. He felt fine after his first shot, and he's preparing for his second. Well, you are listening to Inside Education on KZYX. I, my guest today, I have three um, doctors with us today. We have doctor, we have pediatrician Dr. Jim Flaherty, we have family medicine physician Dr. Lynn Cohen, and family medicine physician Dr. Charlie Hot. And we're discussing immuniz- the safety of immunization for COVID nineteen with children age eight, sorry, twelve to eighteen. Dr. Hot. What are the risks of COVID-19 if children do not get vaccinated? What does a bad infection look like for young people? Uh, the young people contract, you know, can uh, contract the uh, disease as well as uh, the adults. Fortunately, their numbers are not as onerous as uh, the adults. Uh, right now, in terms of children, there have been uh, basically uh, 300 deaths uh, there is uh, almost 4,000 cases of multi-system inflammation. And this, is, this, this can be a, a problem that can go on for weeks or months. 
uh, in adults causes uh, uh, sometimes uh, uh, difficulty with you know, with uh, long term difficulty with breathing. Uh, it can cause um, uh, just a, you know just a, it can affect the heart with uh, myocarditis. And some of the kids have had this acute kidney injury. Uh, this can happen well after the time that the child has been infected with the COVID. And these numbers are still continuing, you know, are still uh, accumulating. One of the areas that's really important is that a lot of the children don't really show signs of the illness of the, of the COVID, and they can pass that on to their family, friends, uh, and other people. And that's, for me, a really big reason for wanting to immunize these children is so that they're not exposing a grandparent, a loved grandparent, or anyone else because they are really not symptomatic. Yeah, that's uh, uh, that's what I, that's my concern about it is that uh, in truth, the, the the big the big concern for me is the ability for these children to infect their parents or their grandparents or their friends. That's what I consider a uh, why I would like to have these children all vaccinated. As of note, uh, there are Stanford is vaccinating kids and other and other groups, other as much as being six months of age. So they are moving the bar, or the, the studies are, are going down to uh, uh, see how uh, how well the children take the vaccine at six months of age and what their side effects you know could be. And that's happening at Stanford. Stanford and other other hospitals that have you know, uh, that have be, become involved in this. There's going to be a it's a group of hospitals that are uh, you know looking at this very seriously because again the the children can carry the, the disease with little little exposure, but they certainly can cause once they expose a an adult or a grand you know, a grandparent or uh, it could uh, the the grandparent can get sick. Uh, that's where we are, but at least. This six months, that's so common for other vaccines, is that a lot of them, they'll get them at six to nine months anyway. Dr. Cohen, is there any advice you would give to vaccinated people when talking with non-vaccinated people? How do you handle these conversations? Unfortunately, I learned the hard way. Having just arrived back from Africa um, about 30 years ago, I was so upset when someone didn't want to vaccinate their kid, I I let them know that and they never came back. Since then, I learned, number one, respect someone else's views. Uh, Number two, try and understand why they choose not to be vaccinated. It could be out of fear, you know, and it could be a fear that might be easy to address or difficult to address. Um, It could be for some other reasons. So my advice would be, Number one, um, and this time you would have to explain why you're keeping your distance and wearing a mask to this unvaccinated person, that you didn't want to pass anything on and you don't want to be exposed to anything. I think it's important if someone is at increased risk or susceptibility, like they're undergoing chemotherapy or they have some other underlying condition, that you explain to the person that this is why you know you chose to be vaccinated. Uh, number two, I think it's important to show some curiosity or concern as to why this person chose not to be vaccinated. And you might be able to help them by answering some questions or reassuring them from your own experience. 
But especially if this is a friend or a family member or someone who trusts you, um, that makes a big difference. If someone trusts someone else, I think they're more likely to listen and learn and perhaps have their fears allayed. Um, so I think it's important to really show that that concern and that compassion to, for someone else's views. Um, the other thing would be to explain to this person who's unvaccinated that most people get the vaccine um one, to protect yourself, two, to protect your loved ones and friends, three, to protect your community. But in particular, for children, uh, why one may want to seriously consider getting a vaccine is to enable faster reopening of the schools, uh, promote socialization, which is so important in children, and to catch up with educational goals because obviously we dropped quite far behind this past year without um, the usual school attendance. Yes. Um, you could also direct them to some resources. CDC.gov is very reliable. The Academy of Pediatrics has a website called healthychildren.org. Um, they refer you to some YouTube videos about your child's vaccine safety, um, the journey to emergency use authorization. There's another organization called mothertobaby.org um, that also answers a lot of questions, especially for um, new mothers. Great. Thank you. So, Dr. Hot, are there pre-existing conditions that make the vaccine unsafe in children? This is one that really, really surprised me uh, in a, uh, a sort of a, a positive uh, fashion. Uh, and um, there's just a blurb that I found that I thought was really well done. And so I'm just going to read it to us. Uh, read it to us. Um, there is, and here it is. This is from a pediatrician uh, that's associated with down in uh, 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 Southern California in uh, uh, a, a the Orange County uh, Children's uh, Hospital. Anyway, and here it is. There is no category of children or teenagers who shouldn't get the vaccine unless they have a known allergy to one of the vaccine's components. Because it isn't a live vaccine, which is a vaccine that used a weakened form of a germ to prompt the immune response, uh, people with weakened immune systems, either from illness or medication, may still receive the vaccine. There have been reports of allergic reactions to the vaccine, but these occurrences are very rare. Serious reactions is what we're talking about. Vaccine recipients are monitored for 15 minutes after receiving the injection in case of allergic reaction. Anyone with a history of severe allergic reaction to foods or medications uh, are monitored for 30 minutes. Uh, children and teens with other types of allergies beyond any vaccine component can feel safe receiving the vaccine. The only other thing that's in the vaccine is a tiny amount of uh, polyethylene glycol. It's a 0.1% of the vaccine dose. That's it. And this is a substance that's found in like Miralax and other stuff that is consumed by uh, people. But anyway, uh, you know, to me, uh, because these other vaccines could cause problems, you know, other vaccines that are with uh, altered uh, uh, bacteria or viruses, uh, could cause problems, you know, can cause many more side effects than these uh, vaccines. You're listening to Char Dr. Charlie Hott, 
this is KZYX with Inside Education. I'm Michelle Hutchins, your county superintendent of schools, and we are exploring vaccine safety of COVID-19 vaccine for children ages 12 to 18. Dr. Cohen, I understand that all COVID-19 vaccines have emergency authorization from the Food and Drug Administration. When will they get regular authorization? Well, that's a really good question, because so far it looks like none of them have applied for the full license authorization. The emergency use just um, allowed them after some preliminary um, limited trials to get that emergency use authorization, but that then enables them to set up um, the phase trials. There's phase one, phase two, phase three. Um, phase one starts with a limited number of participants. Phase two goes into a lot more participants, and phase three is pretty widespread. You know, before someone would apply for the full authorization, they want to make sure they have all the information possible um, to get that through and to get authorized. Obviously, they don't want to fail and have to go back to square one. So right now, I see it as being quite a ways away because everybody's still trying to gather information on this. Dr. Flaherty, both the COVID-19 and the annual flu vaccine were developed within one year. Why is emergency, why is one have emergency use and the other not? Michelle, the simple answer is that immunizing against COVID, as Dr. Cohen said, is an emergency due to the pandemic, and it legally requires the emergency use authorization from the FDA. Um, and, and so it can proceed at a much faster rate than the usual authorization. But immunizing against flu um, has been on, ongoing in our country and in North America for almost five decades, and we have data surveillance systems and uh, science, whole scientific groups all over the world that monitor the influenza strains and their mutations so that every year the influenza vaccine, what's going to go into it, say, for this year, 2020, fall of 2020 to spring of 2021, um, was decided in March of 2020. And, um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a probability kind of approach, but it's usually pretty accurate. Sometimes it's not, but it doesn't require emergency use authorization. But once in a while it does. If you remember back in 2009, uh, H1N1 emerged. It actually emerged in 2008, and um, we needed to um, have a vaccine against that because it was the predominant strain that was showing up in most places. So the vaccine was developed rapidly under an emergency youth authorization. Our panel today is pediatrician Dr. Jim Flaherty, family medicine physician Dr. Lynn Cohen, and family medicine physician Dr. Charlie Hott. How old should a child really be before being vaccinated? Our experience in the practice of immunization based on our knowledge of how the immune system works in infants and children and mothers during pregnancy and breastfeeding shows that it's safe um, to even immunize newborns. We do that um, in the nursery. They get a hepatitis B vaccine. Um, so we've been doing this for a long time and over the decades added more and more vaccines. And the majority of the, the infant vaccines or the vaccines of childhood occur in the first year of life. And the immune system of the infant is able to handle this. We've, we've shown it. Um, both that it prevents disease, that's efficacy, and that um, they uh, develop the um, immuno immunoglobulin titers, the response to the vaccines, 
um, at levels um, when you give three, four, or five vaccines together that are the same or nearly the same as when you just do one at a time. And um, we really um, give a lot of vaccines in that first year of life, mainly because um, the assumption is, well, it's necessary because the we're focusing on the diseases that those uh, infants get, but also that they're not going to remember it. There are alternative schedules that um, parents come into clinic with and want to spread it out over a longer period of time. And the downside of that is that um, uh, single doses or maybe one or two doses are given repeatedly over a longer period of time and into toddlerhood and preschool time. And so the uh, toddler or preschooler is afraid to come to the doctor for anything and screams as soon as they get to the front door. So um, this means that whether you give them individually or a bunch together, they are both effective. Um, the other thing, though, that's important to say is that um, these diseases that we target have a fatality rate. They can kill children, and um, not all children. And we don't know why some people's immune system is able to fight it through an illness that's usually pretty severe, but they come out okay in the end, and then some don't. Clearly, it is related to somebody's immune system that um, we're slowly getting more information about over time, but the person's nutritional status is also comes into play, too. Dr. Cohen, do we know the long-term effects of the vaccine in children? No, uh, we do not know the long-term effects because the vaccine has only been um, given to children, even in trials, it's been less than a year. Like I say, we don't know, but what we do know is that there are long-term effects of getting COVID in children. And these are all related to the multi-system inflammatory syndrome where you can get coronary artery disease, um, you can get pulmonary fibrosis, um, you can get developmental or cognitive abilities because of the inflammation in the brain um, or from prolonged hospitalizations because of COVID. So we know the long-term effects of COVID. We don't know the long-term effects of the vaccine yet. So just want to update our listeners. I have a panel. This is Michelle Hutchins, your county superintendent of schools with Inside Education. And I have a panel of three doctors. We have a pediatrician, Dr. James Flaherty, and we have family and medical practitioner, Dr. Lynn Cohen and Dr. Charlie Hott. Dr. Cohen, this next question is for you. Uh, what is likely the future of the COVID vaccine? Annual boosters like the flu shot? Do you believe it will become required for school attendance like other vaccines? Well, um, that looks like that younger kids possibly may um, begin getting authorized for vaccines later this year. And as Dr. Hott mentioned, Stanford is going down to as early as six months of age. Um, but again, you know, we want to make sure it's as safe, that we know as much as possible and that is safe before we would do that. In terms of annual boosters, um, my guess, and again, I have not seen anybody really, um, well, there's no definitive uh, information yet, but because of these variants that are popping up very rapidly, you know, and all over the world, just like the flu, the flu variants change every year, which is why the flu vaccine changes every year. So my educated guess would be, for now, the COVID vaccine is probably going to require an annual booster until they know more about the virus. Um, 
School attendance, well, that's up to each individual state. Um, California only very recently, in the last couple years, has made it required that everybody get a school vaccine without any anyone excused unless there is some clear medical reason to do so. Um, personal beliefs no longer um, are accepted in the state of California. So in terms of COVID, you know, I... I don't know. I don't think anybody knows yet what the state's going to do. Okay, Dr. Cohen. <clears throat> First, let me update our view, our listeners. This is Michelle Hutchins. You're listening to Inside Education. I have a panel of um, Dr. Flaherty, who's a pediatrician. I have Dr. Cohen and Dr. Hot, who are both family um, practitioners. So, Dr. Cohen... I heard that babies can get immunity to COVID-19 from their mothers if their mothers are vaccinated or had COVID. Is this true? And can you elaborate on that? Uh, Yes. Recent studies have shown that antibodies can pass to the fetus, um, which could help protect them, um, especially if the vaccination is in the third trimester, which is the last 12 months of a pregnancy. Um, however, what's not known is how long that protection would last. And maybe, Jim, you could speak to this too. But as an example, you know, measles antibodies um, last about a year in an infant, which is why the measles vaccine is given at a year because their immunity is down and that, that has moved up from, from past years. So the same with COVID. I think it's unknown how long that passive immunity would last in the, in the baby um, after birth. So um, there's also some other information that show that um, breast milk can contain some antibodies. Again, how effective these antibodies are going to be, we don't know. Um, breastfed, they, they have done some studies that show there's less uh, respiratory symptoms if an infant does get COVID, you know, if their mother was vaccinated and is passing some antibodies. But what is known is that is, there is an increased risk of severe illness during pregnancy if you get COVID, which can affect the fetus, um, you know, in terms of placental blood supply and the fevers. Um, so, um, in general, it sounds like it's safe to get immunized during pregnancy, um, and it does benefit the, the fetus. The other thing to keep in mind, too, is if mother is vaccinated, you know, that's a, there's very close contact between mother and baby. We, we all know that, you know, there's face to face while you're feeding, whether it's breastfeeding or bottle feeding, changing diapers, just cuddling with your baby. There's a lot of very close contact. So if the mother is vaccinated, clearly that's going to help protect the baby too by not being exposed. Thank you. So listeners, we are taking callers. Again, the number, 895-2448. If you have any questions for our panel today, you're listening to Inside Education, and we are taking calls if you have questions regarding the safety of the COVID-19 vaccine on children ages 12 to 18. So, Dr. Um, Dr. Flaherty, is it safe to administer the COVID-19 vaccine when, uh, with other childhood vaccines, and do you support that practice? Um, I will answer that in one second. I want to answer uh, Dr. Cohen's or, or respond to Dr. Cohen's reference to MMR. Uh, my understanding on that, uh, Lynn, is not so much that it's less or more immunogenic at given 12 versus 15 months, but there's a whole campaign to be done by one as opposed to if, if a vaccine is given at 15, 
rather than wait, just move it to one year one year of age. So, um, in, in answer to the question that you posed, uh, Michelle, um, is it safe to administer the COVID vaccine with other childhood vaccines, and do I support this? My answer is yes and yes, or my answers are yes and yes, but um, I have a couple of qualifiers. Um, regarding the first one, is it safe to administer the COVID vaccine with other childhood vaccines? Um, that might be occurring in physicians' offices because kids, can, if the office has the vaccine, then you know kids have fallen behind on other vaccines during COVID, and, um, and they may be due simultaneously for ones they've fallen behind on or other ones by age. So um, that's a discussion that the parents are going to have with the pediatrician in the office on these vaccination campaigns that public health is doing and in various communities throughout the county we're only giving COVID vaccines, so it's not an issue there. Um, there's limited data on this issue. It's being collected. That's what this whole issue of surveillance is about, whether it's for myocarditis or the, the issue of co-administering vaccines. Um, so the data is limited, and we don't have a lot of it, um, and we'll get more of it as time goes on, and if it reveals a problem, it will be publicized and addressed. I, I believe that is true. Um, if parents have concern about it, then the recommendation that I've seen is that they can get the COVID vaccine separately and then wait 14 days to get the other vaccine, the, the ones that are on their usual schedule. Um, regarding my second yes, do I support that? Um, yeah, the reason I support this is because if you talk to uh, immunologists and allergists, and that's a subspecialty, they say, and in fact, I was giving vaccines with Dr. Carlson yesterday uh, afternoon and evening, and we were talking about the fact that on a given day, our bodies are exposed to dozens, if not hundreds, of things that stimulate an immune response. Now, the immune response can be short, it can be long, it can be complex, but, you know, we inhale things that are foreign to our body, um, we uh, get them through our food and they go through our gut. Um, they can come through our skin. Um, so there's all different ways. Uh, and immunization is something that stimulates our immune response. But the fact that the immune system is on constant watch all day long, every day, day and night, for all these antigens that are out there, whether we introduce them by needle or not, um, it, it's happening. And the immune system is capable of... Uh, processing a lot of things at once. So that's the rationale for my answer. Hello, caller. You are on the air. Hi. I was curious about vaccinations down the pipeline with kids under 12 because I work in the school system. And, uh, yeah, I don't know anything as far as potentials, what, what could be coming along and stuff like that. Go ahead, Dr. Flaherty. Um, yeah, so Dr. Hott already mentioned uh, uh, ongoing clinical trials. So these are the clinical trials that are being done in multiple centers on all age groups less than 12 right now. Um, and so those are the things that once they get the data out of them, they have to get a certain number of uh, patients enrolled in the study, get the data, and then they take that data forward to get the emergency youth authorization in that age group. So we'll be seeing it coming, but I can't tell you when. Thank you. 
our last question for the panel is how would you help calm the fears of patients who are nervous to get vaccinated? Dr. Flaherty, you want to start? Sure. Um, well, I'll focus on the aspect of it when you're actually giving the shot, because uh, we do that every day, every time we give shots, right? There's two different aspects, I think. The, the fact of how you calm somebody down to get their shot delivered versus somebody who has a lot of questions, like the ones we've been discussing today. Um, you know, we reassure people. We give them breathing exercises. We do things when we prep the injection site, like rub hard with the alcohol, flick the skin, um, and do things to distract them. Uh, even squeezing the muscle hard so um, they don't feel the needle going in as much as they do if we didn't do all those things. So there's distraction techniques and breathing exercises. Dr. Cohen, do you have some advice? Um, I think those are very good methods for at the moment when someone's there to nervous about being vaccinated. Um, if they're nervous about getting the vaccine, I think back to what I mentioned about um, a talking to someone who is unvaccinated is, you know, reassuring them that, you know, there's been no safety concerns that have <clears throat> caused any, any problems. The alternative is to talk to the person about what we do know and that getting COVID we know has a lot of problems, a lot of, uh, you know, pretty high mortality and morbidity. Um, now I hate, that's not going to be very calming, but, um, to make them feel better about getting the vaccine, it's like they're doing the right thing for themselves. And Dr. Ha, your advice? Well, I think they've covered it pretty well. Uh, and uh, uh, But it is right, giving it, it, there are techniques of giving a vaccination that are certainly less, uh, you know, less uh, traumatic and uh, listening to the patient um, uh, to the you know to the parent and the patient uh, is very is very important and developing the if you can develop the trust uh, it's something that can be passed on through other other aspects even besides uh, the COVID vaccination but other vaccinations and and other health issues for for uh, de dealing with children and their parents. Thank you. So the fact is, the medical community knows how to safely roll out a vaccine. They do extensive testing. If they see side effects that are unexpected, they immediately test to check how common they are and who exactly is at risk. Any risk from the vaccine is far smaller than the risk of getting COVID. And a big thank you today to my guests. This is Michelle Hutchins, County Superintendent of Schools with Inside Education, broadcasting from the MCOE Remote Studio. New information on Inside Education. We have a new time slot starting next month. Uh, in November, we are going to be same day and time of the month. However, we are going to be at 7 p.m. So in November, our show will be the 4th Thursday at 7 p.m. That happens to fall on Thanksgiving. We're going to have students read poems on gratitude. So please tune in. Again, 7 p.m. on Thanksgiving for Inside Education. Thank you for listening. My name is Michelle Hutchins. I'm your County Superintendent of Schools. Thank you for listening to Community Supported Radio.
This has been a production of KZYX Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ Willitson Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. You can check out our website at kzyx.org to find more content like this, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thanks for listening.